Hello and welcome to the Great Thinkers podcast, in which current fellows of the British Academy introduce the academics that have inspired their work and shape how we see the world today. When Arnold Toynbee published his 12-volume A Study of History, it made him one of the most celebrated scholars of the 20th century. He was even featured on the cover of Time magazine in 1947. In this episode, his granddaughter, journalist and author Polly Toynbee joins historian Rana Mitter, FBA, for an exploration of the man, the books and their enduring legacy. I'm Rana Mitter and I teach Chinese history and politics at Oxford University. I've chosen a historian, Arnold Toynbee, who lived from 1889 to 1975 as my great thinker. He fascinates me because he's someone whose ideas seem to have a lot of relevance to many historical and contemporary issues that we're grappling with in our own era. The rise of the non-Western world, the understanding of structures that make societies rise and fall. And yet, he seems almost forgotten today. Well, most historians are destined to be forgotten. But the odd thing about this particular scholar, and now I'm quoting, is that Arnold Joseph Toynbee was the most famous historian of his time, and the most controversial. These words come from his obituary in the Proceedings of the British Academy, written by another highly influential historian, the late W.H. McNeill. And McNeill was right. Toynbee was famous famous, enough to make the cover of Time magazine in 1947, well known enough that, as late as the 1980s, Chinese political reformers turned to his ideas when thinking about how to renew their own society after the death of Chairman Mao. Arnold Toynbee was immensely prolific, writing books throughout his life that covered a range of topics from Byzantine history to accounts of his own travels in Asia. But his reputation rested on one particular work, actually an extraordinary body of writing, 12 thick volumes entitled simply A Study of History, which dealt with two central questions. Can we define civilizations, And why do civilizations rise and fall? He wrote... The nature of the breakdowns of civilizations can be summed up in three points. A failure of creative power in the minority, an answering withdrawal of mimesis on the part of the majority, and a consequent loss of social unity in the society as a whole. Civilization is a movement and not a condition, a voyage and not a harbour. Those closest to Toynbee understood his gift for narrative and analysis. He was a very shy, awkward, gauche man, unworldly. But the moment he was on a platform, he could deliver a wonderful lecture. He could give wonderful interviews. With children, at least with his grandchildren, he was a fantastic storyteller. And as he travelled all over the world, he always came back with terrific travellers' tales. I'm here with Polly Toynbee, who is an extremely well-known columnist for The Guardian newspaper, a broadcaster, and also, of course, the granddaughter of Arnold Toynbee. Polly, did you have a perception of him, when you were a child, of being someone who really was a bit of a celebrity? I knew he was, because wherever you went, where there were educated people, people would say, oh, you're any relation, because it's a peculiar name, there aren't many Toynbees. And so I would always say, yes, that's my grandfather, particularly Americans. He was really a sort of scholar-thinker, prophet figure who was immensely famous. Arnold Toynbee came from a family filled with distinguished intellectuals and was given an education typical of a particular sort of middle-class Englishman, school at Winchester, followed by Balliol College, Oxford. Yet this wasn't a life of easy prosperity, as his father fell seriously ill, 
causing financial difficulties for the young Arnold at Oxford. However, it was an event that began two years after his graduation that would shape him for the rest of his life. He did not fight in the First World War, even though I think there was some family pressure to to do so. That seems to have been a very important later motivation to what he did. He was stricken with guilt that so many of his friends, colleagues, school friends, university friends were killed. And he had rather carefully avoided fighting himself. He went and volunteered in 1915, but took with him a letter from a friendly doctor saying he wasn't really fit. And so he got out of it. He worked very hard in the war for the Foreign Office, but I think was always ashamed that he had avoided the trenches. And I think he did have survivor's guilt. During the Great War, Toynbee compiled a major report on Turkish atrocities against the Armenians. After the war, however, he was commissioned by the Manchester Guardian to visit Greece, where he found that Turks were being treated with great violence by the Greeks. The 15th of May, 1919. A destructive force of Greek troops was let loose in western Anatolia. As sudden and apparently incomprehensible in its action as the eruption of a volcano. Civilians and disarmed soldiers were massacred in the streets of Smyrna. Whole quarters and villages were plundered. The rich valleys in the hinterlands were devastated by further arson and bloodshed. Wholesale ruin of the country and extermination of its inhabitants began over an area and extended with alarming speed. Last year you made a documentary for Radio 4 about his experience as a Guardian journalist, which, did that give you a bit of a, a free sign? Perhaps you knew already that he had worked for The Guardian some decades before you worked for The Guardian. I did know that he'd written for The Guardian and for The Observer, but I didn't really quite know what. And this was very interesting that it really was war reporting at its rawest. And absolutely not what I would have expected. I thought of him as this bookish, desk-bound figure, a great lecturer, but not somebody who would be on the front line watching the Greco-Turkish war and atrocities and actually rescuing people, something he never spoke about seeing the most monstrous attacks on the Turks by the Greeks, but knowing that the Turks had also done a fair share of their own killing, and came back as a result of that with a very different view of the world. In fact, Arnold Toynbee's reporting caused such a scandal that in 1924 he had had to resign from the chair at King's College London, which had been funded by Greek donors. That war experience and his feelings about the First World War, which he ducked out of fighting in himself and always felt rather ashamed of, changed his view. He had a very Western-centric education, as people did, where, you know, ancient Greece was the fount of all civilization, and everything else was sort of alien and other, and it was a question of civilizing the rest of the world from that fountainhead. And I think he saw how monstrous Western nations could be to each other, how appallingly all civilizations could behave if put in certain situations and no longer regarded there being kind of one moral universe that came from the West, and opened his eyes to the idea that civilizations do spring up all over the place, some better, some worse. And there isn't just one. And I think that was what came out of the war for him. The West has not been the only actor on the stage of modern history, even at the peak of the West's power. And this peak has perhaps now already been passed. It has not been the West that has been hit by the world. 
It has been the world that has been hit and hit hard by the West. I'm just lurking outside the uh, rather impressive polished wood and sculpted, moulded walls of the library. Here at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, one of the world's best-known think tanks on international relations. Chatham House was Toynbee's intellectual home for two decades. During that time, he wrote voluminous annual reports on what was happening around the world, and that gave him a prodigious knowledge of things happening well beyond Western Europe. It also inspired his conviction that one had to understand the non-European world to have a comprehensive picture of the structures that made the globe work. I'm here with Malcolm Madden, one of the librarians here at Chatham House. Malcolm, I've uh, brought you this um, book of photographs of the history of Chatham House. I think there's an image here of uh, Toynbee, along with some of the other members of the committee back in the 1930s. So he's there along with G.M. Gaythorn Hardy, Lord Snell, Lionel Curtis and A.J. Toynbee. He's right there. And I think we're standing right outside the room where this photograph was taken. We now called the William Pitt Room, named after one of the three Prime Ministers who lived in this house. Yes, I have to say that picture is very atmospheric. Apart from anything else, the clouds of cigarette smoke. Not something I suspect you rely on the library or anywhere else in the building today, Malcolm. Oh, I think we have to go back to the 1990s for the same type of uh, atmosphere. I, as a child, I used to go and visit him at Chatham House and he would take me out to lunch. It was to the Athenaeum, to the ladies' annex of the Athenaeum, where he was laughed in a very sort of classicist way about the motto over the door saying, come in, dear ladies, and lie down in Greek. I didn't find it altogether funny. In 1934, Arnold Toynbee published the first volume of A Study of History. Over the next five years, he would produce six further volumes, which would argue that there were indeed distinct civilizations, 19 successful ones, and a further nine that he called abortive, and that they were driven by the emergence of creative elites that were challenged and were led to respond. This idea of challenge-response is perhaps the most central analytical point in his study. In 1937, Toynbee was elected to a fellowship of the British Academy. The citation said that he was being chosen because of the suggestive and stimulating A Study of History, and signatories included legendary figures such as R.H. Tawney, H.A.L. Fisher and G.M. Trevelyan. Their phrasing makes it clear that they regarded his work as important and serious. But it also hints that they weren't quite convinced. Universal history, which is what Toynbee was seeking to write, is a hard sell. Nor was his personal life easy. Polly Toynbee again. I think he was much better with his grandchildren than he ever was with his own children. He was not a very good father. Why was that? He was a distant father who was constantly working on this great work and all of the other things he did. Gave very little time to the children and didn't really protect them from his fairly savage wife, Rosalind. And as a result, they all grew up to be quite unhappy. His eldest son committed suicide. My father struggled with alcohol and his younger brother was a very severe alcoholic. And although they both managed to achieve things in their lives... There was a a problem in that family that was quite serious and Arnold was very awkward and we used to make some fun of him. You'd say, how is so-and-so? And And he would say, very prosperous. As if that was a kind of definition of somebody's state of mind. He was not emotionally intelligent, I think you could say. During the Second World War, Toynbee rose to become research director at the Foreign Office. 
His academic reputation continued to rise, assisted by an abridged version of the first six volumes of A Study of History, compiled by D.C. Somerville. It was that abridged version that sold over 200,000 copies in the United States alone, and led to Toynbee appearing on the cover of Time magazine. Cold warriors were keen for him to argue that the United States was the ultimate civilization. He refused to do this, although others tried to make the argument for him. In 1952, giving the Wreath Lectures, Toynbee caused a storm of controversy, as he declared that the Western world had committed unpardonable aggression against the non-European world. Even today, such arguments have the potential to create a storm. Toynbee was brave to make them at a time when nostalgic arguments about empire were still more commonplace. The external danger of conquest by some Western power was the immediate menace with which those 19th century Far Eastern statesmen had to cope. By comparison, the internal danger of being captivated body and soul by the Western way of life as a result of adopting the Western technology was a more distant menace. Arnold Toynbee used the post-war decade to finish the cycle, writing six further volumes of A Study of History. As William McNeill observed, these volumes had a fundamental difference from the first ones. Toynbee's increasing sense of spiritual mission meant that they stressed the religious elements of civilization rather more than the political ones. This proved a further barrier to historians who thought that, at times, they were reading a spiritual rather than historical argument. This probably contributed to the fading of interest in his work as the 1960s drew on. Also probably part of his increasing unfashionability was the turn towards different sorts of history. A big, universalising and synthetic history perhaps seemed out of place in an era when excitement was growing over issues such as E.P. Thompson's rescuing of the English working classes from the infinite condescension of posterity. But his interest in the wider world may have accounted for the fact that, as his reputation faded in the early 1960s in the West, his stock rose in Asia. Having been a prophet of the rise of the East and the fall of the West, he saw that the West was going to decline and the East was going to rise. He didn't quite see the extent, perhaps, to which China was going to rise, but he was a little ahead of his time in that sense. Certainly, it pleased the Japanese a lot. And in Japanese hotels, when he went there, his book would be there on bedside tables because they gloried in that idea. The Pacific was where it was going to be at. He got the Order of the Rising Sun. I was there at the Japanese embassy when he got it. And I've often heard from Japanese people since then who were brought up on reading his works in a way that people weren't here. So he spent more and more of his time in those places where he was greatly adulated and less and less time perhaps in British universities. Arnold Toynbee died in 1975. In the years since... It would be an exaggeration to say that Toynbee's ideas have had a revival. When I was a student, he wasn't on the reading list, unlike E.P. Thompson or Fennel Brodel, for instance. Yet many of the themes he engaged with do seem to have returned in recent years. The world is up in, if not in flames, certainly in turmoil. Robin Niblett is the current director of Chatham House, where Arnold Toynbee spent so much of his life. 
And we find ourselves saying that we need to really dig back into that more granular understanding, crunchy, I suppose the economists would have put it, understanding of international politics, international affairs. So I think the Toynbee approach, or part of what he gave to Chatham House as we approach our centenary in 2020, is likely to become something that we have to explore again. We need to go back to thinking big, perhaps drawing out of deep, knowledge of particular sectors or regions or cultures or countries. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to provide sort of longer-term answers to this very chaotic period. We'll get wrapped up in all the day-to-day news like many think tanks end up doing these days. In one of the parts of a study of history which he wrote, Toynbee put forward a rather pithy statement of some of the ways in which he saw change happening in society and between states. He said, The dominant minority creates a universal state. The internal proletariat, a universal church, and the external proletariat, a bevy of barbarian war bands. Do those words, you know, written about half a century ago, I guess, have any resonance for you? I think the idea of the internal proletariat today definitely captures, to my mind at least, a sense of the concern about the rise of a majority group of the population who can be manoeuvred by populist politics. I happen to believe populism is a form of politics undertaken by individual politicians to manoeuvre, manipulate, take advantage of popular anger that may not be well formed but can then be targeted in particular directions. So dominant minorities, in a way, are dominating as well the narrative of what a state is about. I mean, I think in the era of Brexit, the era of resentment that's created the election of a Trump, I think the idea of the dominant minority in some ways brings about the idea, I suppose, of the elites that people seem to be attacking so much these days. Yes, but but in a way, it's, it's an elite that, in my mind, does not espouse the values, if you want to call it, or the world view that we had taken for granted in that post-World War II period. It is a new emergent minority who rail against the elite as if they were not the elite. They may be the new elite, but they're the ones who are trying to now mobilise their own internal proletariat to their own vision. One phrase that Toynbee uses in this summary of his own work is to talk about the tragedy of disintegration. Mm. Is that a phrase that has some resonance in these very turbulent times we're living through right now? I think it reminds us that politics has a circularity to it, that we repeat, if not rhyme, history, that everything that has been created ends up disintegrating at some point, the trick being to spot it's disintegrating and to have an idea of what you can build anew going forward, not how do you stop the disintegration, but how do you understand the disintegration and then build whatever the new thing is going to be that will be the new form of stability. The contemporary academic world is keen to stress the importance of global history, and Toynbee was one of the earliest exponents of the idea that one should learn from cultures or civilizations other than the dominant one. Of the 20 or so civilizations known to modern Western historians, all except our own appear to be dead or moribund. And when we diagnose each case, we invariably find that the cause of death has been either war or class, or some combination of the two. Civilizations die from suicide, not by murder. His prodigious work does seem dated in the here and now, and few would now share his rather rigid idea of how to define civilizations. But that does not mean that he was asking the wrong questions. And perhaps some part of that legacy appears on a regular basis in the Guardian newspaper, the publication in which he reported the atrocities 
of the Greek-Turkish War in 1921, and where his granddaughter now writes. He was immensely encouraging to me as a writer. I wrote a, a novel when I was at Oxford, and he was very flattering about it. I'm sure he thought it was rubbish. It wasn't very good. But he was very encouraging about it and said, you know, I do hope that you're going to be a writer and that you'll carry on on the tradition. Although it was quite plain, particularly from that novel, that I was not going to be the same sort of writer as him. Is there any sense in which you feel the influence of his work or his ideas in the kind of much more day-to-day political work that you do in your writing? I think I've inherited from him a broadly small-l liberal view of the world, an instinctive anti-war view, an instinctive egalitarianism, and I'm glad to say this passed on to my children and my grandchildren, and long may it last. Arnold Toynbee wouldn't have thought that was such a bad legacy. And he might have been intrigued to know that in our own era, some of the issues that he grappled with are once again at the forefront, not just of academic thought, but of the way that we all understand our world. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or your own podcast app by searching The British Academy. To find out more about the work the British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk.